0: Before Thee let my cry come me. O oh Lord, true to Thy word Teach me Before thee We are thankful that you are able to join us today as Pastor Mark Robinette preaches another sermon at Foundation Church here in Mount Sterling, Ohio. If this message is an encouragement to you, and we pray that it will be, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, because his mercy endures forever. Let Israel now say that his mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say that his mercy endures forever. Let them that fear the Lord say this, say it with me out here, people of God, that his mercy endures forever. I called upon the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is on my side, and I will not fear what man can do to me. The Lord taketh my part with them that help me. Therefore shall I see my desire upon them that hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust the Lord than to put confidence in princes. All nations can pass me about, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They compass me about, yea, they compass me about, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They compass me about like bees. They are quenched as the fire of thorns, for in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. Thou hast thrust sore at me that I might fall, but the Lord hath helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song and is become my salvation. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tabernacles of the righteous The right hand of the Lord doth valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted, and the right hand of the Lord doth valiantly. I shall not die, but live, and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord hath chastened me sore, but he hath not given me over unto death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, and I will go into them, and I will praise the Lord. The gate of the Lord in which the righteous shall enter. I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me. And art become my salvation. The stone which the builders refused is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, sin now prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. God is the Lord which hath showed us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords, even to the horns of the altar. Thou art my God, I will praise thee. Thou art my God, I will exalt thee forever. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. And everybody say it with us today. For his mercy endureth forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for loving us, for being with us this day in uh, these very, very unusual and and, and very um, unique days that we are experiencing together here in this place, in this country, and county, and in the whole world. We pray that during this time, Lord, that we would see your greatness and the, that we would magnify your name, that we would bring glory to you uh, in our good works, that we shine forth as lights in the world with I pray today that you would speak to our hearts, that you would lead us, Lord, that you would reunite us as a congregation in person with one another, that you would uh, cast off this plague that is upon our nation. And I pray in the name of Jesus, Lord, that we indeed would humble ourselves, that you indeed might heal our land. In Christ's name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. 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 Amen and amen. Please remain standing for a moment as we read the scripture. My text for today is Psalm 38. I'm going to preach through all 22 verses of Psalm 38. But I'm just going to read the first six verses for our text. Uh, My sermon today is called Grace to the Humble. How many of you, you can wave your hand out there, how many of you... Would like to have and need to have God's grace. I know that I do. Wave your hand if you need God's grace and you want God's grace in your life. The Bible says that God gives grace to the... Everybody say it. God gives grace to the humble. But God resists the proud. How many of you want to be resisted by God? Not me. I don't want to be. And you know what? I'm sure I have been at times in my life, many times... Uh, humbled by God. In fact, I identify a great deal uh, with this sermon today. God loves us enough to not leave us in our pride, and he loves us enough to bring us humility. The scripture does tell us, though, if we will humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he will exalt us. If we judge ourselves, we will not need to be judged. So today, from Psalm 38, grace to the humble. Psalm 38, starting in verse 1. A psalm of David to bring to remembrance. O Lord, rebuke me not in thy wrath, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. For thine arrows stick fast in me, and thy hand presseth me sore. There is no soundness in my flesh because of thine anger, neither is there any rest in my bones because of my sin. For mine iniquities are gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and are corrupt because of my foolishness. I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. Sometimes your word is bitter we're reminded by the bread that the table of showbread that was in the holy place that bread was made bitter on purpose so that when they ate it they would taste the bitterness that your word sometimes is for us it nourishes us it brings healing and health to us but it is often bitter and today we have a bitter meal before us lord as we may not enjoy it, it will be good for us. It will feed us and it will bring us, I pray, to the humility uh, that we require for you to use us. In Christ's name we pray and God's people said amen. Amen. Everybody say grace to the humble. When I first read this psalm several days ago, I have to admit that I was not looking forward to preaching about it. You might have said, "Look, you know, your text was horrible. You should have kept reading uh, till at least it gets, you know, hopeful." What you'll find if you read Psalm thirty-eight is you will be reading for a really long time. In fact, the whole psalm is pretty uh, painful. Could you could you move this closer to the like I was asking? So it's very difficult uh, for us to, to take these kinds of bitter instructions and to face the difficulties uh, that's, that, that really come to us because they're necessary for us. We don't enjoy these at all. So now I know as a pastor, I'm not supposed to say anything about God's word that I don't really want to teach a certain verse or I really don't want to talk about it, but, but it was true. Psalm 38 is one, uh, of seven. In fact, it's the third one of seven of what are called, uh, the penitential Psalms. Now we do not believe in penitence, uh, but penitential basically means Psalms of repentance, Psalms of self-humiliation and contrition before the Lord. You probably may have recognized some of the early ones that I've taught on. I did not uh, explain that they were among the penitential psalms, but one of the penitential psalms most of you are familiar with is Psalm 51, right? Have mercy upon me, O Lord, right? And we go through the whole, he confesses his sin. My sin is ever before me. It's, it's you know, and he goes on and, he, and most of that psalm is pretty, heavy duty, my bones, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me. I would have offered you sacrifice, Lord, but I know you didn't want it. You wanted a broken and a contrite heart. What is a broken and a contrite heart, but a heart that has been humbled before the Lord. So in this penitential Psalm, this is going to be a little bit difficult for us, but it may be the means and maybe the only means of deliverance For somebody here, uh, under the sound of my voice, that is living in sin. As a Christian, you cannot live in sin. You cannot continue in sin. God will not allow it. But what God will do to you is what he did to our brother David here uh, more than once. David's greatness was not in that he was a man who was above sin. In fact, he... I'm certain is the most sinful of all of our great examples of scripture. And the example was not in the purity of life that he lived, but it was in uh, the total of his humiliation and the total of his abasement before the Lord, his heart before the Lord. That picture of what God was doing in him is really something I think could benefit a lot of us. You might be listening to me today and you might be feeling like a dirty, rotten dog because you know you live in sin that other people don't know about. You may be committing all manner of sin. You know what you think. You know if you're envious. You know if you're jealous. We know. You know if you're unforgiving. We all can't see that. You can smile and you can look at all of us. You can come to church and, and uh, you can put on nice clothes. You can shake people's hands. But you know what is in your heart. And so not only the sins of the heart oftentimes plague us, but we sin and we do things that we don't do with our heart, we do with our body, but they're secret sins. Sins that we uh, participate in, that we allow to live in our lives for one reason or other. We excuse them. We say they're not so bad or not so bad as others. But I'm telling you today and I'm declaring to you, God will not allow sin to be in the life of the Christian. He has called us holy. He has written our names in the Lamb's Book of Life. He has uh, saved us and He's not going to just let us wallow in sin Like a bunch of heathens. Psalm 38, like I said, is one of the penitential psalms. A psalm of confession of sin and regret for it. This psalm is bitter. It is loathsome. It is of pain and of chastisement. It is of guilt. It is a psalm of humiliation. This is not one you want to put on the board at your house, probably but it's one that should just be as prominent in our lives because I think it's necessary for us at many times. God resists the proud, but he gives, he gives grace to the humble. I need God's grace. I'm your pastor. I am a man of God, but I am still a man and I have sinned and I have secretly sinned and I have sinned in my heart and I have been stubborn in my sin more than once in my life, but God has been faithful to help me. This is not Something I'm telling to those of you out there who may be really bad. This sin speaks to your pastor as well as it should to you today. It is a psalm of all the things we hate most. In contrast to uh, that song that all of you probably know from The Sound of Music. These are a few of my what favorite. of my favorite things. Uh, this is not that. This is the opposite of that. This is uncomfortable, unbearable. We want to, you want to hide your face from this, okay? But you can't hide from it. It's true. Now, while I was lamenting the fact my wife and I uh, had retired for the evening and uh, we were preparing to go to sleep and I leaned over and I looked at my wife and I'm like, if you read the Psalm that I have to preach here in about a week, I said, because I was I was going over this last Sunday evening, um, I said, if you have to... Read, I said, you would not like this psalm. You will not enjoy this psalm, and, and I don't want to preach on it. And as I begin to say that, God began immediately at that moment to speak to my heart why I don't like it, but why I should understand its benefit and why I should like that bitter bread, that show bread that's in the temple. I should open up my mouth wide and I should put it in because bitter as it is, it is nourishment for me and correction that I oftentimes need. I pray that we can take all of that journey together here through the valley of the shadow of these dark things, reminding me of who I am and reminding you of who you are. The very first light that came on this as I read these unpleasant words was this passage. This passage in the scripture from Luke 18 that I read, I I remember literally as I spoke the words out of my mouth, telling my wife that I don't really want to preach on this. God began to direct me to Luke 18 to the passage that we read about the publican. It's amazing to me that God loved that prayer. And he hated the other one. And the man who prayed the one prayer... Did not go away justified before the Lord or himself, but the other man did. How many of you want to write the publican's prayer? Like, we want to memorize the prayer of Jabez, or we even want to memorize Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk to the valley of the shadow. But who wants to memorize this? Who wants to memorize the publican's prayer? Woe unto me, I'm a sinner. I don't even deserve to look over there. He beat his breast and he was, he was in lament. Who wants to write that down? I don't want to write that down. I don't want to think of it. I don't want to remember those times that I've wallowed in my own sin and and, and the judgment of God has come upon me to the point where I just can't take it anymore and I finally give in. If we were standing in the temple complex in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago with Jesus, I don't think we would like the publican's prayer. I don't think we would write it down and go, Now this is a good prayer. We might go, uh, hey, let's take you to where Jesus taught the disciples to pray, right? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We like that one, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a pretty good one. Now it has, That's beautiful. Jesus said that. I like that, right? But I don't think any of us would have responded the way Jesus where he said, you see that man over there praying? And then... I bet you we would have liked the other prayer. We would have now, we, we won't now because we know what Jesus thought about it, but we'd be like, man, it, it's kind of nice to know that there's a man who fasts once a week, who tithes and does what he should, who, who keeps God's law. He's confident that his righteousness in God has been seen from above. What a beautiful prayer it is. I really think that most of us would have done that we would not have been thinking like jesus that's why jesus came and jesus came to teach us what the way he sees things we see them one way and we go man that guy i like that guy look how nice he's dressed and look how respectable he's acting look how reserved he is in his emotion do you think the publican was reserved the bible says he beat We'd go, you know, that person needs to calm down a little. They're really getting into it a little too much. Right? That's what we would say. Why? Because it makes us uncomfortable. So I opened my Bible and I did my best to put myself right there with them as I began to read the words of Jesus in context. Now, what I found really surprised me. That's why I was anxious for them to read all of of Luke 18. It is not just a story of the publican and uh, in the, in the, in, in, in the Pharisees' prayer there, it's a whole chapter about humility. If you, and I'll, I'll kind of walk you through it. I won't go through it all here. But, but I opened, I began to read. It's a total assault on the sin of pride from about every angle you can think of, okay? Luke the physician, the historian, the author, the man of God, skillfully by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, takes these stories and he paints a portrait of pride And contrast it with humility. Chances are, if you're honest, you will find yourself, maybe if not in the publican's prayer, you'll find yourself somewhere in Luke 18. He starts the chapter, if you remember, and this is what I picked up on in the very beginning. It starts off with a man who neither feared God, nor what? Regarded men. What kind of man is that, Matt? You think this is a humble, sweet man? He neither feared God nor regarded men. He ain't nobody to me. Who does he think he is? He ain't telling me nothing, right? That's his heart, right? And he didn't fear God, which was even worse. But but what you see here is you see a, what kind of man? Everybody say a a proud man, right? He neither feared God nor regarded men. In the same chapter, we hear about the rich young ruler. Right? Now you may not think of him as being proud, but if you read about it, he was rich, he was young, and he was a ruler. When a young man becomes a ruler, what oftentimes happens to that man? The Bible says you don't even want young men leading in the church. You don't want novices. Why? Lest they are lifted up in in pride. It's hard. That's why, that's what was difficult for the disciples. They're like, well, I mean, who can be saved? He believed he was following the commandments. A lot of young men believe they're they're good. You know, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm not like these other guys. I'm not like those guys, you know, living in their mom's basement until they're 32 playing video games. I mean, I'm not like him. I go to church every Sunday. I have a decent haircut. Even though he hadn't obeyed all of these commandments, he thought he had. But then we go to Jesus' interaction with the children. What, do you, what, what is more humble than a little tiny child? And the disciples, they didn't like it. Get, get him away, get him away, get him away. And Jesus' is like, oh, no, 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 this is what I want. What about a child, you know, was Jesus pointing to? And then we go to blind Bartimaeus. And blind Bartimaeus is a symbol of what? Was he proud? Was he too proud to yell and scream? Be quiet, blind Bartimaeus. You're, you're going to disturb the important teacher. You're a blind beggar. You're a nobody. Shut up. And what did blind Bartimaeus do? He cried all the more. Why? He didn't care what they thought. He, he would completely abased himself. Anybody ever do something around you like, could you quit that? Like, you're really embarrassing me. Right? I actually get that quite a lot. <laughs> so I'm going to read it for you. Luke 18, he spoke a parable of certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. You see, that's what pride does. Pride feels good about you, and it causes you to despise people. You think they're, look at those people, those people disgust me. That's what pride does. Pride is disgusted by everybody else's poor behavior. Why? Because you're so good. That's what pride does. It feels pretty good about yourself and looks down on everybody else. You might be so blinded by it that you don't even know that you're doing it. Your mouth is always quick to disparage others for their foolishness, for their stupidity, for their perceived ungodliness. Even when you really don't know the whole story. But you expect everyone to see the pureness of your own heart. He spake the parable. Certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others that's the purpose of what jesus talked about with the publican and the pharisee two men went into the temple to pray the one a pharisee and the other a publican the pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself god i thank thee that i am not as other men are extortioners unjust adulterers and then he looks over down his nose and and that publican over there. I fast twice in a week. Now, you might think, and oftentimes when I have recounted this, I've had this guy who's saying these things, I've had him uh, sounding more like Nellie Olson than he probably did. I don't know if you've seen The Little House on the Prairie, but he's like, I thank thee that I'm not like other men are, extortioners and unjust. You know, that's how, I don't really think that's how he prayed. I really don't. I think he really believed his own prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not like these others. They're unjust. They're adulterers. (sighs) Extortioners. (sighs) Even as this man, I know him. He's ungodly. I'm so thankful I'm not like him. You might go, I can identify with that. The publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes to heaven. Why would he not do that? He couldn't bring himself, Matt, to look at God. Because it was like turning the light on all of his nasty life. He couldn't bear it. You ever do something wrong? Matt, have you ever done anything wrong? Is it hard to look the people in the eye who know it? Kind of hard, isn't it? You know what we do? When we do wrong and someone deals with us about it, we look them right in the eye and we tell them they don't know what you're talking about. Rather than bringing our eyes to the ground and going, you know, that, that might be me. That's what we do. That's our response. Why? Because we're proud. I think thee, I'm not like other men are extortioners. I fast twice a week. I, I tithe of all that I possess. The public and those standing far off would not lift up so much as his eyes to heaven. But he smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What's amazing to me is those are all the words of his prayer that Jesus had recorded. That's it. He didn't take this opportunity to teach them to pray. He didn't lead them through the steps of of glorification and giving of thanks and the offering of requests and then glorifying God at the end. No, this man wasn't very sophisticated in his prayer life. He could not look up at God. He was almost in pain at his own wretchedness. And all that he said was, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says this. These words are written in red for those of you that have a red letter edition of the Bible I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone that exalts himself shall be abased, shall be humbled. And he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Next, I was taken to Isaiah's prophecy about the coming Messiah, who was certainly a man of sorrows. So I'm sitting there, you know, I've just told my wife, I don't want to preach about this. I'm, I don't like it, and God is dealing with me on why I don't like it. I don't like it because nobody likes it. Pride of life does not like to be crushed down. We don't like it. We don't like to be thought of as sinners and and wretches, but that's what we are. It's not just John Newton who's the worm because he bought and sold slaves and transported them across the ocean. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and all of us look into the face of God or maybe we even can't do that and we look at the ground and we should be saying, oh God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. I begin to read Isaiah's prophecy and as I read it, I begin to feel even more uncomfortable with myself because I don't like it. Now, they're beautiful poetic words, but if you listen to them, Lately, I've had to read a few books to try to understand some things that I don't understand. And I have not enjoyed them. There's no joy in reading about people's pain. But sometimes you need to do that. This passage of Isaiah 53, if you read it correctly, it is not about anything that should, you know. Get you all happy and cranked up, it should hurt you. Why? Because it's true and it's painful that someone else did this, but to also know it's the road that God has called us on. Now, I'm going to say a few words while I'm reading this passage that highlight the difficult realities of the life of our Savior that we would rather not consider at all if we were honest. I think we live in the world where people just want to be happy. You can come to know Jesus and he's going to make your life happier. Your kids will be smarter and you'll live cleaner and they'll want to live close to you. And you can be friends and it's going to be so nice and the kids will be respectful. But when you read Isaiah 53, you read about somebody, I guarantee you, you hope you never are. Isaiah 53, who hath believed our report to whom the arm of the Lord is revealed for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. Who wants to be vulnerable? I'm going to say vulnerable. Vulnerable. That's what we hear. He shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. Everybody say vulnerable. vulnerable. He has no form or comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Everybody say Ugly. Are these words that you would like associated with you? Weak, vulnerable, ugly. He is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And what did we do? We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. So say these words with me. Rejection. Rejection. Grief. Grief. Hated disrespected aren't these a great string of words to just all put together aren't they fabulous vulnerable ugly rejection grief these are the things that a lot of people in this life are dealing with every single day you may not but there are plenty of people who are surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows yet we did esteem him stricken smitten of god and afflicted Everybody say abandon. I mean, Abby, do you want to be abandoned? I don't. We're going to get into this psalm. You know what happened to David? He's abandoned. Ugliness came in his life. Pain, affliction. People began to despise him. See, that's what's getting ready. We're getting ready to go there. You ready? It's going to be exciting. It's going to be fantastic. You ready for it? But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. Everybody say deeply hurt. hurt. I'm going to cry. And I I don't mean to embarrass Benita. But I could not keep it together watching Benita in pain. And honey, I'm not wanting to embarrass you. Hopefully it'll be okay as as a lesson. Benita called the our phone, and we had no idea she was crying. And I'm not wanting to embarrass you, honey. Um, she was in pain. She hit her head. Uh, she was in a horrible car accident, and uh, we did not know. We didn't. All we heard was, "Please come to my house." And she's crying. And so I'm imagining all sorts of things. And and I remember when we got to the edge uh, where we could see down where her house was, there were all of these cars. And I just pulled straight in the grass, right in the ditch and just drove straight down through the grass because nothing was going to keep us from getting to Benita. I didn't know if the cars had anything to do with her, but we weren't going to delay one more second than we had to. When we got there, we found out it was Benita who was in the car and she's bleeding and she's hurting. And I know I'm a big sissy, but it just, it, it tore me up. Uh, seeing her hurt like that. It was like seeing one of my own children hurt. Seeing other people hurt is painful. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as the lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shears is done... So he opened not his mouth. Everybody say silent. Why was he silent? Because no one would hear him anyway. How many of you like that thought? I don't like that thought. I don't like the thought of my Savior being ugly. My Savior being abandoned. My Savior being silent. My Savior being hurt. Rejected. Grief-stricken, disrespected, hated, vulnerable. He couldn't even raise his own hands to defend himself. They were pinned to a tree. He couldn't walk away as he had at other times when they had tried to strike out against him, because his feet were spiked to the cross. He was naked. How vulnerable can that? Can you get? Yeah. He could do nothing. Kind of rough stuff. That's where my heart went. As soon as I was talking about how much I don't like this song, God brought me here. I could keep reading. I'm going to stop for now. Just saying all of those words, I added above all together, uh, if I added all of those words together, they make a bitter soup that no one would have an appetite for. We say that someone who seems so far away. Imagine they were all associated with someone that you love deeply. Imagine that. Imagine instead of them being Jesus, the story of this man who lived in Israel a long time ago, who was God. So it probably wasn't so bad for him, we might imagine. But then pick the name of someone you know. I want you to do this. Rebecca. Vulnerable. Abandoned. Rejected. Hated. Despised. Despised. It's rough to hear, right? It hurts us to see the pain and suffering of others. And most of us cannot abide it long. But the prophet characterized Jesus in this way. That might make us do what Isaiah said that men would do. And that is to hide our faces from him. And to despise him. Psalm 38 puts us squarely on the path with this man. And keeps us there for most of its 22 verses. And we cannot look away as long as we are reading them. Today we're going to walk and talk for a bit with Jesus that had no beauty that we would desire him. Despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Bearing our guilt and our sins and our sorrows in the the humiliation of his silence and death. While we want so much to look away, to walk away like the sheep who have gone astray. Jesus says, cast all of your cares on him for he cares for you. Starting in verse 1, a psalm of David to bring to remembrance. O Lord, rebuke me not in thy wrath, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. In this psalm written so David would not forget, David begs for mercy in the midst of a much needed correction from God. It seems to be our way to want to forget these unpleasant consequences of our own sins, but we should dwell, we would do well to remember them. To avoid them in the future. Don't we like to forget? How many of you? How many of you? You you can keep track of everybody else's wrongdoings against you, right? Which the Bible tells us. When people keep track. When you find that someone's been keeping a ledger. That's bad for them. Okay? When you remember them. But what do we do with our own sins? Oh, I forgot about that. We can't remember them. We don't want to remember them. David wrote a whole psalm down so he would remember how bad he had been, how hot and how hard God's discipline was for him so he would not forget. We talk about living lives of remembrance in our house, and we have some beautiful things on our wall reminding us of beautiful times. How many have a reminder of something ugly? It's kind of amazing. But we should have a few of those too. Last week we talked about how God wants us not to fret or burn with anger because of what evil men do. And in this psalm we see that God has hot displeasure. God is telling us not to fret and get uh, burned up or heated up and angry about it. But God can get angry and he does. God's pleasure is characterized in this verse as hot. God's anger toward David for his sin was bad. And you might say, can, can we make God mad? I mean, doesn't that kind of seem odd to say because we're very big God people. We believe in God's sovereignty and his power. But can we make God mad? Everybody say we can make God mad. Do you know how we know? Because the Bible says we do. <laughs> over and over. I looked it up. There were probably 80 passages, honey. 80 passages where it says God's anger was kindled against the people. That word kindled is what? My boys know what kindling is. You guys know what kindling is? Big vow and kid? Yeah. Kindling is you chop up a bunch of wood and you put it together and you light it on fire. That's called kindling. That's what we do. We literally build a fire under God toward us. When we sin and the people of Israel did this and God's anger was kindled against them. The Bible tells us God is a what? A consuming fire. You might go, well, I didn't know we can make God mad. Read the Bible. It's over there, over and over and over and over and over. God's anger towards David for sin was serious. I had to read dozens of scriptures just to... Deal with this. When God's judgment comes down upon us, it's going to be far from anything like pleasant. Now, this is not the time that we are experiencing the pleasures at God's right hand forevermore. Okay? It's not when that's happening. The pleasures experienced at the right hand of God forevermore have been shut down temporarily as God brings his judgment upon us. You might say, I thought God's mercies were new every morning. Everybody say, they are. are. But do you know what it is? God's mercy that he does not allow us to live in sin. We are so broken that we need his constant and grievous correction to knock us down in in our own conceit to cause us to look up, if need be, even with blinded eyes and say, oh God, what have I done? God's word says that in the time of adversity, we are to consider more often than not. The thing to consider is that our blind pride needs to cry out like Bartimaeus louder and louder. Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. Hear us louder and louder and louder. Blind Bartimaeus' prayer sounds more like the publican's prayer than the Pharisee's prayer because it was a prayer of humility, Are we even comfortable talking about God like this? No, most of us are not. We don't believe that God is real, that He is not just there in the blue skies to admire and to enjoy the cool breezes of the sunshine of God. He is and He does, but at the same time, His love manifests itself in sore displeasure when we are willful and we refuse to acknowledge His Lordship over every inch of real estate in our lives. Hebrews 12, starting in verse five, it asks the question, have you forgotten? Kind of reminds me of David, right? David says, this psalm is a psalm to remember. Have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks unto you as children? My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither faint when thou art rebuked. Doesn't sound like to me God's rebukes are like the little swat we do on the little kid's hand. Are not the, you ever see people do the thing where they spank the diaper as if the kid can even feel it? I discipline my ch- children. I'm thinking, "Wow, who they're in terror. They're they're scared of you," you know. And you watch the kids, they're like running laps around, you know, they're doing somersaults on the furniture like, "I do discipline my children." You know, I'm thinking, yeah, maybe you might want to get a little bit more serious with that. He's telling them, don't faint when God corrects you. Why? I mean, when do you faint, Anna? Do you faint when God goes, no, no. (laughs) Right? They're getting serious. Do not faint. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and whom he scourges. I mean, he loves them and he scourges them. A scourge is not a love tap. If you endure the chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is he of whom the father doesn't chasten? But if you be without chastisement, wherefore are ye all partakers? Then are you bastards and not sons? You are not God's sons if he doesn't correct you. Furthermore, we have had fathers in our flesh which did correct us, and we gave them honor and reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they verily after a few days chastened us for their own pleasure. They're just trying to get you to behave themselves, right? But, but, but God does it for our benefit that we might be partakers in his holiness. If you want to be take partakers in the holiness of God, Elizabeth, then when God brings chastisement upon you, that's how you're going to get to do that. That's kind of worth The painful correction. How many want to wave your hand out there? I want the holiness of God in my life. And if you want the holiness of God in your life, you can't get it without the correction of God. God's correction comes to bring us into being a partaker of his holiness. Now, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but it is grievous. Nevertheless, after word, it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them who get the tar beat out of them. That's kind of what it says. Those, those that are exercised thereby, those that have been disciplined, scourged, and God has brought great correction to good things happen in their lives. If God is not doing that in your life and you're continuing into sin, you might want to pray and ask God to do it to you. Oftentimes we cannot conquer sin in fact we can't conquer sin on our own verse 12 wherefore lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight the path for your feet lest that which is lame be turned out of the way but let it rather be healed he's trying to say god loves us enough to not leave us the way we were when he found us i love that analogy that c.s lewis does about a dog he meets a, a dog on the street and he wants to bring it into his home but can you have a dog who lives in your home who eats everything and tears everything up and stinks wretchedly and goes to the bathroom in your house? No. So do you leave him the way he is or do you train him and do you correct him so that you can live with him? So he can lay by your feet as you sit in front of the fire. So you can pat on his head. So when you're finished eating that T-bone steak, you can take that bone and go, here, buddy. You, but can you enjoy the dog if you don't discipline the dog and if he doesn't know his... His parameters. What if he thinks he runs the house? What's happened when the dog thinks he owns you and runs the house? The dog finds a new place to live. No chasting is pleasant at the time. Afterward, it yields a great fruit. But we often forget the whole episode. David wrote Psalm 38 to help us remember the consequences of his own sins. What a brave man. I mean, a man who includes Psalm 51... His repentance toward God and then writes it. This is my prayer of repentance when I had a man killed and I cheated on him, you know, and I I committed adultery with his wife. I mean, guys, what is more humble than that? I mean, what if I'm like, hey, you know, the time I really messed up in the church and I really did the wrong thing. I'd like to write a poem about that and I'd like us to sing it on a regular basis so that we remember that Pastor Mark doesn't always get it right. Pastor Mark was a moron. Pastor Mark sinned like nobody's business. We don't want to do that. I'm telling you, David's act of humility here in writing a prayer about his own sins in of itself should teach us something. David's penitential psalms that he writes, confessing his sins and, and helping us. This is what God loved about David. It wasn't because he was tough enough to kill Goliath. It wasn't for any reason like that. It was that he understood that I am a sinner and I need a savior. And look, God humbled me and I'm not, I'm not going to hide from this. In fact, I want to remember it. What we'll also see is that sometimes it takes a whole lot of discipline. Everybody say, a whole lot of discipline. A whole lot of discipline. In humiliation, in suffering to come for us to come to ourselves. But no matter how long it takes, everybody say, God is faithful. God is faithful. Some of you might go, why is this trial so long? Why is this so, thing so difficult in my life? It's probably because you're so stinking stubborn. It's probably because you're so sinful in yourself and God is dealing with you. Now, my caveat here is not every bad thing that happens to everybody is God hurting you and disciplining you. And you need to repent and everyone should know if anything bad's going on in anyone's life or if anybody's sick. That's not the message here. I'm I'm talking to those of us who know when we sin, who know that God is correcting us. And what we do is we just buck up and we're like, I can take it. I can take it. I can take it. I can take it. And we keep our sin until what? Let me tell you what will happen. God will make it to where you can't take it anymore. That's just exactly what the Bible teaches us. And I'm going to show it to you. And I'm going to walk through this. And we just may be here all day. Okay, It's a Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. No matter how long it takes, God will not leave us to our sins, but is faithful to bring us to a place of repentance. We have this hope from 1 John chapter 3. Now, this passage is often misunderstood by those who think, that it teaches that Christians can reach some sort of a state of perfection. I would think that the human condition and the fact that every theologian is a human being and knows other human beings would know that this theology is goofy. Why? Have you guys ever met anybody who's perfect? I've met a few people who thought they were like the rich young ruler, but they weren't. First John chapter 3 teaches us Uh, this he that's now, now the, the, what's amazing is what I'm going to read the passage, but before I do, what's amazing is that, that before this, it states this, he who says he has no sin deceives himself and the truth is not in him. Right? So don't you think that would be clear enough so that later when he says what I'm going to read, you wouldn't get the idea that people that are Christians never sin. Right? But, but they miss it. All right. He that says he has no sin deceives himself. We know that this cannot possibly be the meaning uh, of what I'm going to say. Uh, This scripture does not mean we can be perfect and and not sin. Because it clearly says before that, the person who says they don't have sin uh, is deceived. I believe God makes it impossible for us to continue in sin. And he brings us often to a miserable repentance. 1 John 3, and I'll read it. He that committeth sin is of the devil. Now that's pretty rough. I mean, if you read that all by itself outside, if you I mean, ha, imagine putting that on your wall, Abby. He that commits sin is of the devil. You would have to conclude, if that was out of context, all by itself, you go, I am of the devil. That's what you would have to say, right? But that's not what it's saying. He that commits sin of the devil, for the devil sinned from the beginning. For this is the purpose of the Son of God, was manifest, that he might destroy the works of the devil. I mean, if you read that in context, I'm of the devil and God's going to destroy me and I'm a bad person. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin for his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now, if you read that all alone and you didn't read it in the context of the entire first John, you might get the idea that people that sin are heathens. That's not what it's talking about. Sinners, uh, every Christian sins. In fact, he said, if you say you don't, you're a liar. But when we sin, we have what? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So there's not a contradiction. So, but many people miss this. In fact, it's hard for them to read it because when they read it, they go, that's not true. You know, he that commits sin is of the devil. You're like, well, I'm not of the devil and I sin. And, and you have this inner dialogue. Don't be troubled by the theology of 1 John 3 unless you just want to read all of it. And you need to understand that First John's message is we are sinners, but we cannot live lives continuing in our sin. Does that make sense? God's people cannot continue in a life in a practice of sin. But sometimes, everybody say, sometimes it's a long process to bring us to a place where we will give in and give up. And you know what you're going to see with David? David resists God, resists God, resists God, resists God. And then he taps out. This is what God does. He, and people that are a little more tougher than other people, they get a little bit more whoopings. They get a little bit more discipline. They have to go through more stuff because they're so tough. You might think I'm being silly. I don't think so. A Psalm of David to remember, to bring to remembrance. O Lord, rebuke me not in thy wrath, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. For thine arrows, verse 2, stick fast in me, and thy hand presseth me sore. I mean, folks, we're not talking about a spanking stick here. David is comparing what God is doing to him like shooting him with an arrow. Have you ever been shot with an arrow? The only person I know that's been shot with an arrow is Pastor Nang Tong. He's been shot he, he pulled up his pant legs one time and showed me all the scars on his leg where arrows have gone through his legs several times. I'm like, okay, that's that's pretty tough. Kid-sized correction comes with a rod, but man-sized correction, even more suffering must come to a man. David here describes the pain that God brought to him as being hit in the flesh with arrows, as God's hand crushed down upon him and put him in his place. Sometimes we need to be crushed, right? Into the hand of God. Verse 3. There is no soundness in my flesh, David cries out, because of thine anger. Neither is there any rest in my bones. He's losing sleep. He 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 feels like everything's uncertain. He doesn't know what to do. He's falling apart. Anybody relate to that? God had brought David physically to a place that affected his entire body in such a way that he has thoroughly scourged him within and without. What God was doing in and to David was almost too difficult for him to bear. Verse 3 For mine iniquities are gone over my head. They are a heavy burden and they're too heavy for me. Have you ever, anybody ever slipped under the water? You're going to drown. It's happened to me before. You you go in and you slip on something and you're you're under the water and you're you know you know I've actually fallen through ice. It's pretty scary stuff. David is feeling like, okay, I'm drowning here. I can't take this. This is too much for me to bear. Verse four. Mine iniquities. Now this is where it starts. He understands what is the cause. Everybody say, my iniquity. He doesn't say God's discipline is over his head. He's being buried in his iniquity. My iniquity are gone over my head and as a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me to bear. But guess what David does? He keeps bearing them. He shows God how tough he is. God brings him punishment. It's kind of like the kid who's getting whipping and going, it don't hurt. I can take another one. Heath, if you're on there, have any of your boys done that? <laughs> I can take it. You're not hurting me, dad. Go ahead whack me another time. You know? That's what David does. David's like, it's almost too heavy for me to bear, but uh uh-uh, I got it. I'm all right, you know. And David resists God's correction like a stubborn kid. You're not hurting me. And God's like, okay, let me send you a little bit more. David knows God is not merely somehow taking pleasure in hurting him. He knows that what's happening in his life is a direct result of his own sin. Are you living in sin? That's a good question to ask yourself right now on a day like this. Now we're not told what the sin is, but later a later verse that we're going to get into hints that this sin may be a sexual sin. This is not something that doesn't touch the people of our church. Sexual sin is very real. I don't talk about it a lot, but I believe it warrants mentioning here. David probably Known, his past sin was a sexual sin. We know that he had some issues, right? And so in this case, it appears that it's possible, based on something we will read here in a little bit, that this is a sexual sin. Can God forgive sexual sin? Everybody say, God can forgive sexual sin. sin. He can't. But let me tell you what God will not do. God will not abide it in the life of the Christian believer. We need, to, we need to care what we think about, care what we look at. We need to care how we treat others around us. You know, when our church gets together, we're going to be talking about some things that have to do with our children. And our children are growing up, and there's things that happen that we need to be aware of. Sexual sin is a very, very real thing, even within the church. It's horrible, horrible. And even David, we know, sinned. He, he committed adultery with Bathsheba. Was that his last sexual sin? I think maybe not. A, a millstone seems to be cast around David's neck as he has been thrown into the sea of his own sin. And he pleads for mercy. You know, sometimes we want mercy, but we won't repent. Lord, I don't like this. Lord, this hurts. Lord, this is a... Un- pleasant lord lord stop it lord i can't bear it but has david quit you're going to find out so in the psalm he doesn't quit he just keeps pressing on i can do it i can still do it god doesn't mind i can live like this god will forgive me i'm a calvinist i'll be okay i'm going to heaven anyway no big deal folks if you think about your sin like that you're going to find out that's not biblical and what god will do is he will bring judgment on you because he loves you god's not going to allow you to live In sin, if you think he did, just keep living in it and God will bring it. I'm trying to get somebody out here today to repent. A millstone, as I said, seems to be cast around his neck as he'd been thrown into the sea of his own sin as he pleads for mercy. It reminds me of Jonah who sinned against God in not going to Nineveh. It was only when he was in the belly of the fish for days under the water, certain of his own demise, thinking he's swallowed and he's gone and his life is over. It was only then that he cried out for forgiveness and repented of his sin. And sometimes that's what it takes. Verse five, my wounds stink and are corrupt because of my foolishness. Everybody say my foolishness. It is our foolishness to think that we can live in sin and that God is not watching and that he doesn't care and that he will allow it. If you think God is like that, you think God is not involved. I mean, many of you pray and expect God to hear your prayer, right? You expect him to come when you need him, but do you expect him to just stand by? Is he going to be like Eli who did not restrain his sons, Hophni and Phineas? No, he will not. He will restrain his sons and his daughters. And I am one of them and so are you. An infected wound filled with pus and gangrenous smells. This is not something we want to see. We don't even want to talk about it. It's gross. And in David's time, it was no laughing matter. They did not have the benefit of our modern medicine. And when a wound was infected, it is... Time that admit a loss of an arm or a leg or a certain death. He knows his own foolishness has brought this dread upon him. But as we'll find out, it's not his arm or his leg that's infected and filled with pus and filled with pain. It's perhaps a part of his body we don't want to talk about. As we've said before, trouble is bad, but trouble you know that you have caused is another it's much worse pain is bad but pain that has come by your own sin and foolishness is quite another David knows that there will be a great cost for his sin his sin with Bathsheba cost the life of his baby and a curse on his house and plagued his house with sexual immorality and murder from then on we the man after God's own heart God did not withhold his punishment from his servant David is he going to behold his withhold his punishment from you Verse 6, I am troubled and I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day. You know, sometimes we can be sorry, sorry, sorry for our sin and sad, sad, sad. But as you'll see, he's not, God's not done with it. We're only in verse 6. We're going on to verse 22. Isn't it going to be great people of God? Why is it so long? Because that's what happens in us. We refuse to forgive. We uh, live our lives looking at everybody else and we compare ourselves to them. We covet. We think uh, we don't get our due from God. We don't get our due from others. And we live in sin as we entertain these thoughts and as we live in pride. And God says, no, I resist the proud. And he resists you. When we sin and it hurts others and brings judgment upon ourselves, it is right that we mourn. We should go about this. Uh, We should not go about as though nothing has happened. It should grieve us. But in Christ we have forgiveness and for this we can be glad. But still the pain of our sins should help us in our pursuit of righteousness. And for David it was not doing that. It was only making him sorry. Being sorry is not repentance. Changing your behavior, stopping it, confessing it, fleeing it putting every roadblock that you can in your life to make sure that that sin cannot live in your life. That's what people do who flee sin. Verse seven, my loins are filled with a loathsome disease and there is no soundness in my flesh. He gets to the heart of it. Those of you with more discerning ears can understand what is going on. He has most likely an STB of some kind. He is experiencing infection and pain and he thinks he's going to die. And it may be that this is because of ungodly sexual behavior. The illness plaguing David was hurting him in a particular way. Perhaps, but not necessarily, though it may or may not have been related to the sins, but sometimes God will do that. He will bring our correction in that place in our life so that we know exactly who has brought it. He gets in verse 8, I am feeble and I am sore broken. I have roared by reason of the disquietness of my heart. Can you hear these words? He's roaring. He's he's feeble. His heart is falling apart. Sickness can make you feel so weak and hopeless. And this is what was happening. David was feeling this as he suffered. His complaints to God were loud. We often complain even when we know we deserve what has come upon us. How many of you have been sick and in your sickness, you're just like, I don't know if I'm going to live another day. I don't know if I'll ever be able to do anything. That's how David was feeling. Verse nine, Lord, all my desire is before thee and my groaning is not hid from thee. You see, David is like, I'm crying. I'm sorry. But what hasn't David done yet? What does the Bible say? If we sin, we need to do. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess, what's David doing? He's not confessing. He's just sorry. He's just sad. He doesn't like it. He's crying. He's mourning. Is that enough? Is that repentance? No. Repentance begins with confession. David prays in this time when we are weak And suffering when despair casts its shadow over us, those who know God, we call on his name and we plead for mercy and help. Often this is the fruit of discipline. And when it is not, God is faithful to do what? Send us more inspiration. Why? So we call on him again for his forgiveness and for his help. David's personal strength worked against him as it often does among those who can take a whole lot of punishment. People like that need more difficult circumstances to bring them to their knees. The next verse, David walks further down this path of correction. Verse 10, he's still suffering. My heart panteth, my strength faileth me. As for the light of my eyes, it's also gone out of me. He can't see, he can't hardly walk, he can't take it anymore. David is reliving how he kept resisting God and God kept pressing him with more punishment. This trial was not a quick one. It wasn't over in one day. It was drawn out and it wore on David day after day. It hurt him. It ached him. It leveled him low as he groaned and he roared. And when that was not enough to bring him to his senses, he was abandoned by his closest to him. Verse 11, my lovers and my friends stood aloof From my sore and my kinsmen stood, they stand afar off. His relatives, his friends, those that like him, now they're abandoning him. What is happening to David? More. Everybody say more. Why is more happening to David? Everybody say, because he needs more. What's going to happen to you if you live in sin and you just keep it to yourself? Is God going to send you more? And I'm going to tell you, I believe that he will. God loves you. God is not like like, like me. I have limits. I don't know if Gideon is sinning. I don't know what he's thinking. I don't know what's going on. I can't be with him 24 hours a day. But everybody say God doesn't sleep." sleep. The Bible says, For the eyes of the Lord go to and fro, beholding the good and the evil that men do. God is with you, watching you every time you're in that sin that you're committing. You might think he's not there, what that shows is you have no faith that he actually is real, but he is. My lovers and friends stand aloof from me sore. My kinsmen stand afar off. When it wasn't enough, when the loss of his friends wasn't, God sent his enemies. This is, this is progression. He smites him personally. That doesn't work. He presses him. He makes it worse. He's experiencing misery. He's about to lose energy. What does he do? And then he gets abandoned by his friends. And next, you know what happens? He gets attacked by his enemies. When your friends, the Bible says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Your friends will come to you and go, You really need to repent. You're really living in sin. You're really causing division. You're really stirring up strife. You're really, really uh, destroying the peace and the purity of our church. Please don't do that. Those wounds are faithful, they're not to be despised. But when we despise those, you know what God is faithful to do? When your friends will not bring you to repentance, God will send enemies to you and they will have no mercy. When it wasn't enough, when the loss of his friends was not enough, God sent others to chastise him. Verse 12, they that seek my life, they lay snares for me that they may seek my hurt. They speak mischievous things and they imagine deceits all the day long. Even after all that, did he hearken to the message that he knew was true and repent? Everybody say, David did not. In verse 13, David confesses his stubbornness to stop his ears. To the song of the guilt that he was hearing. What happened when Stephen was preaching? What did they have to do, Nathaniel? At the end, what did they do? When they couldn't take it anymore, it says they put their hands in their ears. They couldn't take it anymore. And they gnashed on him with their teeth. And they run and they begin picking up rock. Why did they hit him, Matthew? Why did they kill him? Because they wanted him to shut his mouth. They could not take it anymore. Why? David is hearing this song, this song of guilt. But what does he say in verse 13? But I, as a deaf man, heard not. And I was a dumb man that opened not his mouth. I should have heard the correction of the Lord. I should have listened when he told me to repent. But I did not hear it. And I did not open my mouth. I acted like I was a man who could not speak. What does he say? I didn't confess my sins. I didn't admit my sins. I didn't call out to God for a change of life. I was just sorry for the pain that was coming in my life. Isn't this a wretched psalm? Would you really want to remember this? David did, and God wanted us to remember it too, and that's why it's here. I'm thankful we're preaching through all the psalms. I would never preach Psalm 38 ever if it were up to me. I'm a deaf man, and I heard not. I was dumb, and I would not open my mouth. Here, David confesses how he was not willing to listen to good counsel or God's word. He was like a deaf man. He couldn't hear. He would not open his mouth to confess. Beloved, we sin. That is true. God's word tells us plainly. We must confess and forsake if we want to be forgiven. David would not listen and he would not confess. And so what did God do? Everybody say more. God will not. To me, it's a comfort. It's a comfort to know God's not just going to let me live in sin. Let my life be wretched. Let it fall into ruin. Let my enemies rejoice over me. Oh, no. Do you know God will use your sin just like he did David's to do in in this case, David's writing scripture that's helping us in our sin through his sin. Could, Could you imagine David's infected and God knows what way he's experiencing pain going, oh, one day this is going to really help other people. Like this is not what was going on in his mind, but it did. Verse 14 I was a man that heard not and in whose mouth were no reproofs his confession would have been his own reproof God's word reminds us that if we would judge ourselves we would not be judged Next we see David declare where his hope lies that God is listening to his complaints and he will deliver him We get a little hope in verse 15 just a little For in thee, O Lord, do I hope thou wilt hear, O Lord my God. For I said, hear me, lest otherwise they should rejoice over me. When my foot slips, they magnify themselves against me. David did not want the enemies of God to rejoice over his suffering and downfall and blaspheme the name of God. He comes to a place of surrender and confession and in the light of God begins to dawn on the darkness of his condition. David didn't die of this disease. David lived to be an old man. 17 is called tap out time. Okay. That's what happens in verse 17. I am ready to halt. (laughs) I'm done. I'm at the end of the end of the end. In uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, they call it, what do they call it? Right. You finally reached the bottom. I've met people whose bottom is so low. We have to sometimes make it all the way there. I'm ready to halt. My sorrow is continually before me. He's done. Everybody say, he's done. done. Do any of you want to, when we read this, do we want to remember this and go, all right, you know what? I can't do anything about my sin. I guess God's just going to have to punish me fill my body with disease, make me think I'm going to die, have my friends abandon me, and give my enemies occasion to attack me. And you know what? That's the the road I want to be on. Is that the road you want to be on? Do you want to be the one who God sends a storm and they throw a man in the ocean and he's swallowed by a fish? You're like, oh, thank God. Thank God he does that. You know what? I'm going to go wrong. God will send a storm and and a, and a, and a fish and swallow me up. If that's what you want to be, I suppose you can be that. I don't want to be Jonah. I don't want to be David in this situation. I want to be the guy that goes, I'm a sissy. I hear you. I know what's coming. I surrender. I want to have a pure conscience before the Lord. I want to repent when God begins to deal with me. I want to deal with myself. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be chastened of the Lord. I'm ready to halt. My sorrows continue. He's finally done and he declares it. His energy to fight against God is gone and he will defy him. His will to defy him has dissipated and he collapses in a heap before God, abandoning his pointless fight against the one who was saving him from his sin. How long will you fight against God? How severe does your punishment need to be? How complete does your humiliation need to be before you say, I'm not living in that sin? Do you need to be the one that is brought before the church who you know, is living this horrible, heinous sin and won't abandon it? Is that what you need? Do you need to be excommunicated? Do you need to be treated like that? That's what sometimes does need to happen. Why? Because people won't repent. Verse 18, he confesses, for I will declare my iniquity. What's he doing, guys? He's confessing. And I will be sorry for my sin. David is walking us through what had to happen. I wish we could move verse 18 up to verse 2. And then we could have 20 verses of celebration at the beauty of a life of repentance and the unburdening of a man from his sin. But instead, we got probably what we'll end up getting in our own life if we live like this. We'll have 18 verses of pain before we get to the end. I will declare my iniquity. I'm going to confess my sins. I will be sorry for my sin. Isn't it a wonderful thing, those of you who've done it, to unburden ourselves to God and to others? No more must we hide or think that we are hiding what most people actually probably already see. I was reading something someone wrote recently, someone from our church, and they were talking about what a good thing it was when something in their life that was hidden was out in the open. You know who you are. I don't have to carry this around. It doesn't have to be a secret anymore. I don't have to battle this alone. Others can help me. What we hide in the darkness stays with us and plagues us, and can eventually overtake us. I want you to hear what I'm going to say. I'm going to say this twice. What we hide in the darkness stays with us, and plagues us, and can eventually overtake us. But what we bring into the light, offering it to God on the altar of our confession, is cast upon the one who can bear it. We cannot bear our own sins, people of God. But Jesus can. And Jesus will. And he has Cast them on him today. And still, even when we are forgiven, our enemies will endeavor to use our sins against us. But even in this, we can pray and we can ask for God's mercy and his deliverance. That's what David adds right here. Verse 19, my enemies are lively, they're strong. And they that hate me wrongfully are multiplied. They, they, they render evil for good. That's what my adversaries do because I follow after the good thing. What David is helping us to understand that even after we repent, sometimes there are consequences to our sin. It's often this long-term cost that can be very difficult, but David didn't want to forget that either. We will reap what we sow. Galatians chapter six says, be not deceived. God is not mocked for whatsoever a man sows. That will he also reap. You might go, oh, but I'm forgiven. Oh, you are. But will you reap the sins that you sowed? You will. God says, don't think you won't. God's not saying that to be mean. He's explaining to you that you literally are planting the seeds of your own destruction when you sin. And these things will follow you around. Did, what, did David ever escape from his sin? Or did he watch his son Amnon and Absalom and all of this horrible things in his home? Tamar, all of the pain, it was there. God forgave him, but did the baby live? God forgave him, but did Amnon live? God forgave him, but did Absom live? God forgave him, but did Tamar, was she raped? It's horrible. There's often a long-term cost to our sin as we reap what we have sown. I've said it this way before. If one of the many farmers in our community came to our church and confessed Christ, And he did so right after he planted the corn in his fields. All things are new in one sense, but what does he still have growing in his field? He still has corn. David knew that God had forgiven him, but he understood that there would still be a cost for his sin. And in the final two verses, he fully surrenders to God's mercy and he pleads for help. That's really what I'm hoping you will do today. If you've been living in sin, if you've been harboring unforgiveness, if you've been lifted up in pride, if you've been living in sexual sin, whatever it might be, if you're in sin, I'm praying that God would deliver you today, that you would call on Him. Verse 21, forsake me not, O Lord, O my God, be not far from me. It's reminiscent of Psalm 51 where He says, O Lord, create in me a clean heart, renew in me a right spirit. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation and renew a right spirit within me. Forsake me not, O Lord, O my God. Be not far from me. Take not your spirit from me. Jesus promised us this. And beloved, I will encourage you with this. He will not leave you. You've not done anything so bad and so heinous and so miserable and disgusting that God can't forgive you and won't forgive you and even restore you. I will never leave you or forsake you. This is our hope. Even when we sin, who know? We need to know that God is able to save us from our sins. Verse 22, make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. I know this was a difficult journey through this psalm. I know I've been preaching for a long time, but it's not something I thought we could do without God has sent us this message and there are some here among us under the sound of my voice right now who need to repent or judgment is coming upon your house. It's coming upon you. Abandonment is coming. Difficulty is coming. Suffering is coming if you don't repent. And I pray to God that we would do so. Let us pray. Lord God, we love you. We thank you for your kindness, your mercy and your word. David writing this psalm was a kindness to us. He wrote it in the very heading. It says he wrote it so he would remember. What was he remembering? He was remembering his sin. He was remembering his stubbornness to repent. But what we are focusing on today is he was remembering your faithfulness to bring him to a place of repentance. You loved him so much and you wanted to establish his kingdom forever on this earth and Even when the Messiah came, he is a son of David. Oh, how can it be that a man who sins, who was filled with loathsome disease, who was so stubborn, how could it be that he could be the father of the Messiah? Lord, we know that as a son of David, Jesus, thou son of David, as blind Bartimaeus cried in humility, Jesus, thou son of David. Have mercy on me. As we say, Son of David, may we be reminded that we are like David, that we have gone astray, that we've we've sinned, but the shepherd of our souls is faithful to bring us back into the fold. In Christ's name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.